to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Two readings today from Matthew's Gospel, from the beginning and the end. See if you can hear the through line that joins these two passages. First, from the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph before they were married, She became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. As he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And from the 28th and final chapter of Matthew, the very end of Matthew's gospel, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came near and spoke to them, I've received all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of God and of Christ and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And look, I myself will be with you every day, every day until the end of this age. It's the word of God from the gospel according to Matthew for us, the people of God. And so we say together, thanks be to God. So beginning today, I am going to do something that I have rarely done over the years that I have been here. We're going to read through an entire book of Scripture together as a congregation. Over the next several months, we are going to work our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, if I were a smart man, I would have chosen Obadiah or Jude, because those are tiny books, and this is not a tiny book. It's 28 chapters 
long. This will take us a few months. Get ready because there will be a Sunday in April when you will wake up and you will say, I wonder what Reverend Lewicki is preaching about today. And then you will groan inwardly and you go, oh, it's Matthew again. Or maybe not. Maybe this will be a wonderful adventure that we take together. Let's find out. I want to say a few words today about the project itself, about why we're doing it. And then I want to take a few minutes more to talk about the world of Matthew into which we will be journeying together. First, why do this? Well, you all know by now that I want you to love the Bible. I want you to love it as much as I have come to love it. I want it to come alive for you when you read it. I want it to be a living word. It's a gorgeous story. It's a vexing story. It's a horrid story at times. But the Bible is our collective memory about God's presence in the world. Let me say that again. The Bible is our collective memory about God's presence in the world. <laughs> You're dying to know, aren't you? But the way that we usually read the Bible, the way that we read it, especially on Sunday, means that we only get this great story in bits and pieces. We get the Bible equivalent of Chicken nuggets, right? I love chicken nuggets. You love chicken nuggets. Nuggets are tasty, but it's a whole other thing to receive a whole chicken, right? Feathers and all, and be told, this here is your dinner. The latter is much harder. It takes some skill. It takes a lot of patience, maybe a little bloodshed in the, in the course of the events. But by the end, you know a lot more about chicken. And I think you also appreciate the chicken a lot more than you do when you just eat the nugget. A lot of us, even if we come to church regularly, if we're here a couple Sundays a month, we still don't really know our story very well. Most Americans can't name half of the Ten Commandments. Most Americans can't name even one of the four gospel writers. One in eight Americans I read thinks Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. A lot, a lot of us just don't know the Bible very well. But we've been coming to church so long, we're afraid to admit it, aren't we? The great late uh, Peter Gomes, the uh, pastor up at the uh, chapel at Harvard University, said that the Bible is like somebody that we met a long time ago. And we run into that person all the time in our daily lives. And we have totally forgotten their names, but we are embarrassed when we see them to ask. So we are going to read this big, important chicken of a gospel called Matthew. Why? Why are we reading this book? Well, first of all, we are doing it to meet this guy. Ooh, hmm. All right, how about we meet this guy? Yeah, maybe. How about we meet... This guy, yeah, that's my favorite picture of what Jesus might have looked like. Not at all what we have come to expect. I want you to meet Jesus again. Who is he? Do you even know? 
There are no existing accounts, written accounts that we have about Jesus from the people who actually walked with him. We're pretty sure he existed, but what else do we know? We know that he showed up by the Jordan River to be baptized by John with thousands of other people in the Jordan River. We know that he hung out with disenfranchised fishermen on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he talked to them about an alternative to the Roman Empire. We know he was a wandering sage around whom magical things seemed to happen. People said that he transformed their lives by a simple conversation or through a touch. We know he was killed by the Romans, executed. We also know that after he died, people said that they saw him again. And so convinced of that were they, that they lived their lives, they risked their lives to live as though Jesus had risen from the dead. We know that's true. In these next few months, I want you to meet Jesus. I want you to decide for yourself who he is. We won't assume going into this that we know who Jesus is. We'll let Matthew introduce us to this person. Some of what Matthew says you will find deeply comforting. Some of what Matthew says will shock and surprise you. And some of what Matthew says about Jesus, I guarantee, will offend you. That is as it should be. We are about to meet one of the most beguiling people who has ever walked the face of the earth. Let us agree at the beginning that we will keep Jesus weird, okay? Say it with me. We will keep Jesus weird. All right, I think you're with me. So let's talk for a few more minutes about Matthew. Each of the gospel writers are different. You know that. These four books are very different. They had different audiences and different agendas when they wrote their gospels. One of my colleagues, Cynthia Campbell, says that you can think of the four gospels like four different houses. Mark's house is the oldest and in some ways the simplest and the smallest of the houses. Matthew and, uh, and Luke use Mark's floor plan when they're building their house. But they add rooms on the side and on top, and they add lots of their own unique flourishes and details. And John, well, I don't know what to say about John, but if any of you have ever driven down Mead Road in Decatur, there's that house that looks like a bomb shelter. That's John. Like, it's totally off the reservation. He's very strange, uh, John is. We'll talk about him another day. So what's cool about Matthew? What do you need to know about Matthew to understand why he builds his house the way he builds it. Matthew is the Jewish gospel. Now, not many of you here today are Jewish, so that's not going to resonate too much with you. Another way of saying that is that Matthew is the writer who most clearly emphasizes the continuity of Jesus with the revelations of God from the Hebrew Scriptures. By the second century, 
Marcion, whom we remember as a heretic, although he was a lot more than that, Marcion was a teacher who was already saying that Jesus was an entirely different God than the God from the Hebrew Scriptures. Matthew says, no, no, that's not true at all. This is, in fact, the same God. God who made the creation in seven days. God who told Noah to build the ark and sent the rains. God who told Sarah in her old age that she was going to have a child. God who made a covenant with this shepherd boy, David, and helped to make him king over Israel. God who sent the prophets one by one to, to take down the unjust kings. That same God, Matthew says, is now known to us in this person named Jesus. Throughout Matthew, you will encounter Matthew saying that this old God has decided to do a very new thing by becoming a human being just like you. We will find, as we read Matthew together, reference after reference to the Hebrew Scriptures in the passage that I read this morning, the first one, the birth narrative, there was a reference to the prophet Isaiah just dropped in. Matthew's constantly saying things like, as it is said in the prophets, and then he'll drop that quote from the Old Testament to show that what is happening in Jesus is connected to what came before. You literary geeks, and there are a few of you out there, will know that Matthew's technique is called intertextuality. Can I say that in church? Intertextu I can, right? Intertextuality. It just means, right, that's a, that's a, 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 a what is it? It's, it's just a word. It means a text that references back to another text. There are some phenomenal examples of this, but the one that I think you know best is from Martin Luther King. When King stood up on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to give his I Have a Dream speech, he begins five score years ago. Who is he alluding to? Abraham Lincoln, right? Abraham Lincoln he's alluding to. And when he says, one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that oh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, who is he quoting? Thomas Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence, and when King goes on to say, I have a dream that one day every hill shall be exalted and every mountain shall be made low and the rough places will be made a plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Who's he quoting? Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. That's intertextuality. Matthew's going to make you look back at the old stories and want to read those stories again. What were those stories really about? What are the through lines that lead from those old stories into the story of Jesus that Matthew is telling? Why does Matthew, for example, insist on portraying Jesus as the new Moses? You're going to want to go back and read Exodus again. My hope is that all of us, as we read along with Matthew, we'll also get good ourselves at what Matthew is doing. We will go back into the past and retrieve parts of our tradition that help us illustrate the meaning of the present moment. American Christianity right now, if you haven't noticed, is kind of a hot mess. Like we're under the sway of this 
theology that treats the Bible literally, which is actually a novel, modern phenomenon, a modern way of reading it, and it's not healthy. We're under the sway of a kind of theology that has told us that Christianity is more interested in matters of sex than about money. That's not true. But we can't just say those things are wrong. We have to go back into our tradition and pull on the threads, find the threads of continuity that will illumine the present moment. We can draw connections from the Old Testament and the wilderness God who comes to Moses and says, my name is I am, to the desert mothers and fathers in our tradition, to the Celts up in Ireland, to Dorothy Day, to the multiracial spirit-filled communities of Pentecostalism. Our task in this present moment as Christians, when so much of the church is overrun by bad theology and by uh, just being boring, right? Our task is to do what Matthew does to identify the threads of the past, to gather them together, and to reweave a credible and compelling understanding of what it is to live with God in the present moment. A few years ago, our siblings in the UCC, the United Church of Christ, came up with a church motto that I still like. The motto is, God is still speaking. The same God is still at work. But how and where? That's a question that Matthew provokes us to ask. And so it's a question we will hold together. Now there's one other thing I want to say about Matthew before I finish today. There's one other thing I want to name about Matthew's gospel that you should know as we begin this journey. Matthew's gospel demands, and I use that word intentionally, demand, because we don't like things being demanded of us. I don't. Matthew demands, however, that if you follow Jesus, your life should look different. Matthew projects the life of Jesus as a project with ethical implications. Matthew's Jesus says that our core ethical requirements are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, we can handle that, right? I mean, you can, you can get that. You can wrap your mind around that. Maybe not every day, but most days, not all the time, but that's within your reach, Right? Oh, but my man Matthew goes a bit further than that. He goes, to borrow a phrase from his own gospel, the second mile. It's not one thing, right? It's one thing, Matthew says, to not hurt people, right? Any of us cannot hurt people. But Matthew says, if you get angry at your brother or sister, or if you call someone names, you're in danger of a fiery hell. Oops. Uh, Matthew says it's not enough to not commit adultery. Matthew's Jesus says that if you even feel a bit of lust, that's as good as the actual thing. Oops. He says that any of your, uh, if any of your body parts are tempting you to sin, it would be better if you just cut them off than to yield to that sin. And if those of you are out there who kind of uh, like hemming and hawing and equivocating about important matters, Matthew says, cut it out. Let your yes be a yes and your no be a no. He says, if people slap you on one cheek, you should offer them the other cheek to slap also. 
He says if someone steals your cloak, if they steal your outer garment, you should give them your underpants too and be naked as a jaybird there in the street. He says give to everyone who asks from you anytime, any place. Don't refuse anyone who ever wants to borrow something from you. Matthew says if someone harms you, you must forgive them. And if someone harms you again, you must forgive them. And if they harm you again, you must forgive them. Again and again and again and again, you must forgive. If you have too much money, give it away, Matthew says. Do you love others? Matthew says, great, love everyone and especially love your enemies. You've heard, perhaps, that the only thing you need to do to be a Christian is accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Matthew has some other ideas for you. When I was a teenager and I began to read the Gospels on my own, beware of letting your teenagers read the Gospels on their own, I encountered some of these ethical instructions of Jesus. Now, granted, I was a weird kid in my fairly conservative Ohio suburb, but I thought this Jesus was amazing. And I looked around at my liberal Presbyterian church, and I looked at those people in the pews, and I said, none of these folks are actually doing these things. What a bunch of hypocrites, which is actually a word that Matthew uses a lot. Of course, now I am one of those hypocrites. But that raises such good questions for us, doesn't it? Matthew begs us to ask questions like, what is it that we expect the life of a follower of Jesus to look like? What are we supposed to do with our money and our anger and our enemies? What ethical standards are you willing to hold me to and what are you willing to hold yourself to? Now, I expect this focus by Matthew on ethics will be exciting to a lot of you North Decatur Presbyterian uh, church folks. Like, we're a congregation, right, that's kind of made a name for ourselves by taking Christian ethics seriously. We're a church that tries to embody the gospel in word and deed, not just love your neighbor, right? That's ethics 101. We're into the 200 and the 300 level classes. Uh, Shed your white privilege for Jesus. Give up your possessions to feed and house others for Jesus. Visit the sick and those who are in prison for Jesus. Throw yourself into the machinery of war making and economic exploitation for the sake of Jesus. We are a Matthew 25 church for crying out loud, right? Right? Matthew's ethics teeter headlong into a life that begins to feel impossible. They push us far beyond what is normal and what is comfortable. And so after a while, you begin to wonder, what is it that Matthew's really driving at? It's not a list of rules for us to follow and enforce. Jesus' ethics in Matthew are an invitation to encounter the divine. In his gospel, we encounter something. We encounter someone who throws our world for a loop. Turn your life 
around this Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is here. Okay, Jesus, what does this kingdom of heaven look like? How will we know it? How do we live inside it? Well, I'm glad you asked, he says. It looks like a mustard seed, which grows into a very large weed. Okay? It looks, he says, like yeast, which when you mix it with the holy bread, ruins it. Okay? The kingdom of God, he says, is like a treasure that was hidden in a field and someone else found it. This kingdom, this upside down, inside out kingdom that Jesus unveils, this world turned upside down is a world that disturbs and provokes us. Jesus disturbs and provokes us. Happy, he says, are you who are poor. Happy are you who are weak. And happy are you when you mourn. We know that's not the way the world works. And yet he draws us deeper and deeper in into this counterculture, into this new empire where love always reigns. Matthew will insist that your encounter with Jesus and with the realm of God is so beautiful and so compelling that you will be changed from that encounter. Not just your actions, not just what you do, your inner being will be changed. Jesus will change you from the inside out so that nothing that seemed impossible will seem that way anymore. All these things will be possible. The reign of love will be possible because, Matthew says, in this new reality, God is with us. Jesus, Emmanuel, God is with us then and now and always. So what do you think? Should we read a little bit of Matthew together? Let the church say amen. Amen.